Welcome back to Repod, the University of Solvers research podcast. And today we're talking to Robin McCarthy, who is a research assistant in the School of Health and Society, working on public health. And it's a fantastic insight into how researchers work across methodologies, deal with complex ethical issues, and really take care of their research participants to ensure they benefit from what we do. Enjoy. Hello, Robin. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andy. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's good to have you here. Another of our colleagues from the School of Health and Society. It's fantastic to have these really far-reaching conversations about all the different research that's happening at the University of Salford. So it's great to be talking about your work today. And as with each of these episodes, we get to know the person's journey into research. So where did it all begin for you? Uh, well, that's a, that's a good question, because I actually only relatively recently retrained to work in research. Uh, so I originally trained as an optometrist and spent 15 years uh, all over the Northwest testing people's eyes, working in different communities. And I started to notice some of the real differences in health between some of our communities in the Northwest. And I started to get interested in why and why some people seem to be taking health advice on board uh, and others not. Um, and then that led me to start to think about a change of career. I, I, di I didn't rush into it. I did actually, I gave it quite a lot of thought and I spent about a year looking at various different options. Um, I did all kinds of things. I, I did, um, I volunteered for the National Trust. Um, I went along to some freelance uh, events for freelance workers uh, mm. and then I, I was just happened to be doing a bit of research for my own professional interest into a condition called fetal alcohol spectrum disorder because I felt I, already, I knew about the condition as an optometrist but I felt I was seeing a lot of children with uh, facial features that could be related to that I felt mm. you know I thought it was a really rare condition and, and I, I couldn't understand why I felt I was seeing it relatively frequently in clinic so anyway I did a bit of googling um, and I wanted to find out how common it was see whether I was imagining things or not um, and I couldn't find any prevalence data but I did find this um, article about this amazing research that was happening looking at um, separating out uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders from the effects of early trauma, which can have some overlapping symptoms. And obviously, it is something you quite often see together. Uh, now, that I was just, I, I was really fascinated by the research, and I expected it to be happening somewhere like. Uh, I don't know, Vancouver or Chicago or somewhere, you know, in a really big mm -hmm. uh, uh, centre somewhere else in the world. And I realised it's happening just up the road at Salford University. I was like, wow. So that was um, Alan Price's uh, PhD research that he was doing. And I emailed him. Uh, I emailed him saying, I'm, I'm looking and I can't find any prevalence data for the UK. And he said, no, there isn't any, which is crazy because we do think it's quite common. And I said, oh, well, I'm an optometrist, and if there's anything I can do to help, let me know. Um, and he said, do you have any research experience? I said, uh, no, <laughs> none at all. But off the back of that conversation, 
um, I found through Alan's supervisor was Professor Penny Cook, and through her page on the website, I, just, I found out about the um, Masters in Public Health. And it just reading up about it and reading more about all the different sorts of research that was taking place at Salford, I just thought, uh, wow, actually, this really interests me. And this could be something I could do. I could get some extra skills and um, find some new things that I could possibly do as a changing career. Mm. So I did the Masters, um, really, really loved it. Um, I highly recommend it if anybody's thinking about doing a Masters um, in a health related subject. Uh, the teaching methods really suited me. Uh, when I've been doing my undergrad uh, a long, long time ago, I'd struggled to sort of concentrate through a whole lecture uh, and may have occasionally fallen asleep. <laughs> um, but whereas when I was doing the Masters in Public Health, uh, the, the sort of constant change of learning methods and, and how interested and passionate the, uh, the staff were was really inspiring. And I loved doing the Masters and I would have been quite happy even if it, it hadn't actually turned into a change in career. Uh, but I then did get approached by uh, Penny Cook um, and she, I'd gone in to do a seminar about my dissertation project to the next year students and she said, oh, well, we've got this funding to do a prevalence study in, in FASD. Would you like uh, to be the research assistant? And I was just like, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, and wow. And um, yeah, so me and Alan still joke about that sometimes. I keep saying that every time there's some big data missing, I'm going to email him. <laughs> and then magically somehow that will then result in us getting the data um, but, but no yeah. so, um, really excited and um just such an important piece of work uh, and our, we just had our first paper from the project published um last week and although we, we were funded by greater manchester health and social care partnership so we were funded really mainly to look at greater manchester um so it was a relatively small study, but it is still the first UK prevalence data we have That's for FASD. And yeah, is, is so that your first paper? Is that your first publication as well? Yes, that's my first uh, oh, publication lovely. as a first author. Uh, and what a paper to start on. I think I may um, I may have set myself quite a high yes. bar uh, <laughs> for carrying on. But, um, but yeah, and yeah. It's, it's been really well received. So That's far, incredible. But... And it's, it's a wonderful story as well. And it just sort of reminds me of how the different ways into research that people take and how often they come about through just informal conversations, a casual email to somebody because you're interested in something and uh, and how there are many different pathways into research. Uh, with yeah. And I think it, it often sort of begins with that sense of something being interesting and important to explore which uh, which we may arise at through just our own personal lives or people that we know and uh, and just, to, just for people that may not know too much about the field what is fetal alcohol spectrum disorders what does that broadly describe so fetal alcohol spectrum disorders uh, is a range of conditions that can occur um, when somebody drinks during pregnancy when somebody consumes alcohol during pregnancy so um We've known for quite a while about a condition called uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, where a child is, is quite severely disabled, and that, and that relates to, um, uh, and the child often looks visibly different, and that relates to uh, heavy drinking during pregnancy. Um, and we've known about that since the 60s. But what we're now starting to realise is that it's, like so many other things, it's a spectrum. And we think now, especially based on our latest data, that it might be at least as common as autism, mm. uh, if not more. 
Um, but it's difficult to pick up. It doesn't look the same in every person that's affected because it all depends on how much was consumed um, and when during pregnancy. And, and also there are genetic factors that we still don't really understand yet. So it can look very different from one person to the next, but it does have certain traits in common. And that's what we were able to do as part of the prevalence study. Uh, we had some amazing experts on the team who um, who are diagnosing FASD uh, in clinic. Uh, we had um, Claire Allerley, who's a specialist in autism. We had um, Raja Mukherjee, who's um, a psychiatrist, NHS psychiatrist, who has a specialist FASD clinic, um, as well as, of course, Penny Cook and Alan Price and uh, Kate Fleming from the University of Liverpool who was our statistics expert. So it really was, and, and everybody was so uh, passionate and motivated. It was, it was amazing to get a chance to work on that project. It's incredible. So is that working with different hospitals and clinicians based in the region? No, actually, because, because it's a spectrum uh, and mm. because it's really underdiagnosed at the moment, um, yeah. we, couldn't, uh, we couldn't just do that. We needed to go out into the community and look for cases of FASD. And we ended up going only into mainstream schools, actually. We did want oh. to go into a special school, um, but we couldn't find a special school that would have us. So um, we went into three mainstream schools and we found um, a, an absolute minimum of 1.8% of the children in mainstream schools had FASD. And we were really cautious. We were really, um, you know, we, we, were, we were prepared for people to be critical uh, if we weren't quite strict about our methods. So it was yeah. also really important um, that we made sure our scientific process was really rigorous um, and we could back up all our decisions because we didn't want anybody to be able to turn around and say, you've not done a good job because we knew this data was going to be really important. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so important. What I found really interesting about these conversations with researchers is often about the details of the methodology, because obviously those are really the nitty gritty details of getting it as not necessarily right, but as good as it can be. So how did you approach then recruitment? So you mentioned working with schools. So did you go into a school and, and do mail outs to, to parents or how would it work? Yeah. So it was quite complicated, and that's probably the reason this kind of study hadn't been done before. Mm. We needed uh, we couldn't afford to assess all the children. Uh, so we needed to go in first and do some pre-screening and identify mm -hmm. children that where the evidence suggested they were higher risk. So we went and we did a height uh, and weight and head circumference to identify children who were very small for age. Uh, we actually didn't find that many children. Uh, we certainly didn't find that many cases of FASD through that method. Um, but we also asked the school to tell us about all the children who were already on their SEN list. We asked about children who'd been ever been through uh, the care system, so children who are either currently or previously looked after children. Um, and we asked, um, we then sent out a letter to parents saying um, either we'd like your child to come in for further assessment or we've not found any reason to be concerned. If you would like your child to be assessed, please opt them in. And actually, a number of our FASD cases were children where the parents were worried. Mm. but school haven't yet picked up on a significant issue and that okay. also reflects yeah what we already knew about um the condition we then got those kids um in well we tried um it was really difficult as you can imagine um some parents were really offended some yeah. parents were just impossible to contact um and but the kids that we did get in we did some 
standardized uh, validated tools like uh, the whisk and uh, with the kids and we took photos of their faces uh, to be put through some special computer software um, and we also got the parents in and we interviewed them and got into loads of validated questionnaire tools to screen for things like um, autism, ADHD, which we were, which we knew we needed to look for because that's part of the process of diagnosing FASD. Mm -hmm. We also um, detected some, uh, which we weren't expecting to find, some cases of developmental language disorder and uh, just learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we even found a child who had uh, a very low IQ who um, wasn't even on the school's SEN list at the time when we assessed them. Um, and we decided then to go uh, back for the children we thought were high risk. Mm -hmm. We also then needed to uh, rule out any genetic causes because there are some very rare conditions that can look a lot like FASD. So we collected saliva samples and um, we took those off. I drove them around to the genetics lab at the children's hospital and dropped them off uh, and they screened them for us. Um, so, and then we had case conferences with all the data. We pulled all the data together for each child. So as you can imagine, there's, there's quite a lot of data there. We compared it against our case criteria for FASD. Um, and then we, um, we also noted any other potential disorder that we thought might be useful for the parents. That's that's an incredible range of methodologies that have been used for the project. I mean, we, we often talk about mixed methodologies and how, how to approach things. And there's, there's two questions I've got about that. First of all, I guess public health research is probably often inherently sort of mixed methodology. Mm. But I'm really fascinated by how you as a researcher is able to work across that range of methods mm. with confidence. And I, I'm sure collaboration comes into it, but it must be very challenging. Well, it was, it was definitely a challenging study. Uh, and I think the thing that uh, really helped me was probably my 15 years of, of effectively collecting data from the public and children. Um, and um, I managed to teach myself how to use the, uh, the some of the screening tools. And, and we had some tents helping us with the parent interviews as well, which was great. Um, but it was tricky. But interestingly enough, what you're saying about uh, mixed methodology, we got to the stage where um, March 2020, when we were about to go into lockdown, and uh, I said to Penny at the time, we'd only just sent out a load of reports to parents, and we promised these parents that we'd be available to them to answer questions and help them um, in any way that we could. So I said, I really don't want to be furloughed, because I really think that would be a bit rough on these parents and um and also I, I didn't really want to be furloughed uh, for personal reasons i was pretty mm. sure that wasn't going to suit me at all so i said well actually one of the things i find quite annoying about all this data we're collecting is this is the first time this study's been done um, and everybody says uh, you know it's incredibly sensitive and you can't possibly go around telling people their child might have fasd because it's just too upsetting and too awful and i said well that doesn't seem to be in the case mm. with the parents that we've spoken to so far. So um, can we go and interview the parents and get some really good quality qualitative data about how they experience taking part and receiving their child's results? And we did, and we managed to speak to six parents, um, including one who was a birth parent of a child with um, suspected FASD. And, um, 
And actually what they told us was, yes, although it was, it was not, it wasn't a nice thing, but it wasn't something that you would want your child to have, that actually, generally, they were relieved. Like any other parent with a special needs child, they just really wanted to find out how they could best help their child. Yeah. Um, and to get some answers. And as I say, a lot of the parents um, were, had would started to come round to the idea their child might have extra needs before the school had. And so mm. they were really reassured to find out that our measurements agreed with um, their observations. Um, and that, that obviously that's really useful as a parent as well. So yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. And I guess I can imagine that for those parents, I mean, one thing is being able to identify that this this is something that may explain certain characteristics. But then I suppose they're they're very quickly looking for what can we do then? What do we need to do as exactly. parents to, yeah. to help? Which is which may I, I imagine may fall outside the remit of the study. But but how do you sort of respond to that as a researcher? Well, we did. I, th I think because many of us involved in the study are our parents, mm. um, we did include um, in the reports that we sent out, um, we gave them a, 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 an easy, accessible explanation of what the result meant. Um, and we also gave them, so for each of, uh, each of the um, measurements that we took, so it was quite a lot of information. Uh, mm -hmm. We also then had a column which says, what, what can I do? Which, which had sort of easy, small things that parents could do straight away that might help. Um, and often with um, a lot of conditions like FASD and ASD, actually um, just reframing the way the parent and the teacher looks at the child mm. is half the battle anyway. Um, we also included another section which said, um, and who else can I go to for help? And we included whether we thought a referral was necessary um, and also um, what kind of referral, but also local support groups, etc. So, uh, yeah. and we did, um, we, we have tried to be available to parents even after that point, and we have helped some parents advocate for getting referrals, which for some reason was still difficult even after we'd given them all this report with all this data in. Um, so I, I feel certainly in, in a number of the cases, uh, we've really um, improved the, the outlook for those children. And certainly some of the parents were incredibly grateful. I can imagine. And and I also imagine that when you apply for sort of research funding or even just go through the ethics process at the university, having some of these possible, um, I, I guess, courses of action for parents at the end of the study or at the end of the data collection is a really important part of that process. But was there anything, I suppose, surprising about about the carrying out the research did anything sort of cause challenges that you hadn't thought through or surprises that you needed to work through yes we were um I, i'm a very determined person <laughs> Andy, and um, i was i was very very determined that we were going to get the children the care experienced children consented into the study and i already mm. knew that that meant i would probably need a team leader's a team leading social worker signature mm. on the consent form um, and despite my very best efforts, we we still we got about just over half of the ex care experienced children consented into the study, and that included uh, me, me like arranging meetings with them, and then I'd go and turn up, and they'd keep me waiting for fifty minutes and never show up, and you know, and so the, that was a shame, and that was even harder than I expected it to be. Um, yeah. I was also quite surprised to find um, how resistant some parents were to having their children um, assessed. 
Mm. Maybe not surprised, but still, uh, again, every time it came up, um, it really it seemed a shame to me that they couldn't see the value yeah. of getting the extra information. That's something else I'm really I'd like to research into further, really, mm. um, because I suspect I just it completely baffles me. So I suspect there's a whole element to it that I'm just not understanding coming from my angle at all. So yeah, interesting yeah. to find out. And uh, you mentioned the paper that you published recently. What has been the sort of reactions to this? How has it, how has it been? So we've had a fantastic response to the paper. Um, so this is, the again, as I said, this is the first prevalence data for the UK. So there were a lot of people interested in FASD. They were already quite excited and looking forward to the paper being released. And that's helped. We've also got some people who are essentially volunteers within the FASD community who uh, are really good at um, social media management. Mm -hmm. And we, between us, we managed to get quite a good high profile on on the paper's release on Twitter. Uh, And we also managed to get it out just within FASD Awareness Month to Mm. sail on the back of some of that. Just, it was literally the last day of September. And um, I included, I always try and mention people in tweets and I always tend to be I'm, I'm quite prepared to tag anybody I think might be um, a good person and I've tagged quite high profile validated accounts is it validated yeah yeah that's right they've got it yeah, yeah. Um, and I included some presenters from a woman's hour on radio 4 mm. uh, because they've 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 had some rather um, less than positive coverage in the past about drinking during pregnancy mm. Um, and then they actually did cover the story of the research and we got mentioned uh, the paper and the University of Salford got mentioned uh, on a show this week and I just thought wow well that's national national coverage yeah. and all the people that would have heard that the impact the public health impact of that could be massive yeah. so yeah I'm really really pleased with that and I wonder with that I mean that's fantastic to hear it just shows how important it is to be publicly visible to be able to make those connections and I, I'm absolutely like you I will absolutely cold cold tag people that I don't know yeah. and things that I think they need to know about I wonder though with the research area that you're working on uh, if you do interviews do you get questions like well well is you know how much alcohol is okay to consume do you get that sort of level of conversation or and how do you respond to that Yes, well, we've always, again, from um, where everyone on the team was coming from, we were really, we were in well, well enough read up um, yeah. to know that, that it wasn't, um, we didn't want to approach the subject with any sense of shame or blame. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, as a country, we drink. Drink is everywhere. It's a big part of our culture. Um, and there's no reason there should be any more shame associated with drinking during pregnancy. And that that happens for um, lots of complex reasons. Uh, And actually, the time when the children we were screening um, were born was before the medical officer had released the recommendation that it was best not to drink at all. Mm -hmm. And there were some really mixed messages. And I know from working with the public, if you say to somebody, it's oh, it's probably okay to drink this much, there's always going to be a percentage of people who hear... So it's probably okay to drink more. And then there's always going to be some people, believe me, having worked with the public, who will think they should drink lots and that would be a good thing. So that is, um, I think now that we've got clearer messaging that really it's best to avoid alcohol altogether, that is much better. 
Yeah. It is a really um, sensitive subject, and I think there are a lot of people who um, who feel very sensitive about the idea of women being told what to do during mm -hmm. pregnancy and autonomy over their own bodies. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm a feminist and I absolutely would still think that women deserve to know about the risks of drinking during pregnancy. Because yeah. apart from anything else, half of the people affected are women or will, mm. are girls or will be women. And, uh, and also it's more often than not women who are caring for those individuals mm. when they quite often need lifelong care and support in some fashion. Um, so I think that's a really important um, point of view. So if you can look at it from that angle and, but also make sure that there's no shame or judgment at all. Yeah. Um, I think, or, or, you know, reduce it as much as you can. I think that's um, the best angle to take. To yeah, honest. it really sounds like it. And I, I wonder whether your data shows that in fact, when speaking to those parents, what their level of awareness of it being a problem was. I mean, as you say, the messaging has changed only very recently, but did you get a sense in which people may not have known that in fact it is a problem to do any drinking at all? Is it something that was... Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's such a small sample. Certainly when yeah. you get down to our number of cases of FASD, it would be wrong to generalise from that number. But we certainly found that many of the birth parents where their children were still in their care, mm. um, we didn't get anybody who disclosed dependent drinking consented mm -hmm. into our study. And that's and I, that's not surprising. And we weren't really expecting that. Yeah. Um, but the parents who, who, did, who were honest with us about how much they drank quite often had discovered the pregnancy quite late, hadn't been planning oh, pregnancy. And they'd been drinking the amount that I would drink over the Christmas period yeah. for the first trimester and then stopped as soon as they realized or maybe went back to drinking the odd glass later later on in pregnancy which again at the time was very common um and that that, that can definitely be enough to cause issues right interesting and i suppose just thinking about where this goes next for you tell me it's wonderful to hear your journey in research and and, and additionally your just aspiration to take things further in, in more directions so what's next for you well, uh, currently I'm working on a non-FASD related project, uh, which is looking at um, the experiences of older women suffering from urinary incontinence during hospital stays. So it's a completely different angle, although um, it's also quite a sensitive subject. In fact, um, so far, I can tell you that people are more sensitive about older women's urinary incontinence than they are about FASD. And I wasn't wow. expecting that at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we're so we're going we're interviewing nurses to find out how um, whether an intervention that's already been developed in the community is going to work in, in a hospital setting. And we're looking at um, whether it impacts on mortality, which is a really important issue, but nobody has looked at it before. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I'm really hoping and we are um, talking to some various other researchers across the country at the moment about trying to get a national FASD prevalence study with different centres mm. so that we can try and come up with some uh, a more accurate um, national prevalence figure. And I suspect, if anything, um, based on what I've seen collecting the data on the ground, yeah. I would say it's only going to go up from what we found. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that, in fact, the FASD community was really helpful in, in building a sort of social media campaign around that. Because I think that's one of the things that isn't always apparent when doing research, actually being able to partner with allied organizations that are interested in the work you're doing. So is that community, was that a sort of a scientific community or was that a 
a sort of family community? What sort of people are in that community? Well, it's it's really, and I, I gather this isn't always the same in other areas of research, but everybody who works on FASD research is really collaborative and really, mm. um, you know, happy to share information um, and uh, interested about and happy to promote other people's work. Yeah. And um, that's certainly what I've noticed. And but also we have a lot of parents. Um, we have quite a lot of people who are adopters who have adopted children with FASD. Mm who have become quite passionate about raising awareness. Um, and there's a national um, run organization called National FASD, uh, which isn't academic or research based. Um, and, and they're doing some amazing work um, to raise the profile of the condition and, and prevention. Okay, that's incredible. I think it's such an important part of it. And uh, what incredibly important work you're doing. It's so wonderful to hear about you both your sort of it's clear your commitment to sort of public health research and and doing things for for the social good is is, is really inspiring to hear so thank you so much for joining us today to, to talk about this in detail and it's really for me demystified a lot about how public health research needs to happen in order to be effective so congratulations on getting the study complete first of all but also on, on doing something that is that is a first for the uk that's incredible to have been able to achieve that very exciting and thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it. Oh, it's a pleasure. I look forward to seeing where you go next, Robin. So thanks a lot and speak to you soon, hopefully. Thanks. Bye, Andy. Take care. Bye bye. Well, that was Robin McCarthy from the School of Health and Society talking about public health research. These conversations are a highlight of my week and it's fantastic to hear just how diverse those stories are that bring people into the world of research and how much they benefit from those complex pathways. Join us again next time for another episode where we'll be talking to Professor Will Swan, whose research around Energy House at University of Salford has been absolutely pioneering. Speak to you soon.